Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Hey there, welcome to today's episode. My name is Brandon Laws and I'm your host. If you haven't gone back and listened to some of our old episodes, do that. We uh, have over 100 episodes at this point and you can go back. They're all free. We've got a lot of ranging topics, HR, business, leadership, all that. So go back, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. There's several other podcast apps you you can access from. And be sure to give us a review. Five stars would be great. And we appreciate the support. So today's episode is a conversation with Darren Murner. He is the author of Corporate Bravery, and he has over a decade of experience with some of the largest corporations in America. Darren has worked as an outside consultant. He's led operations and finance teams. He's worked in risk management. And all these experiences have been compiled to really create the thesis for corporate bravery. So our discussion is all about that book. I think you'll really like this discussion. It's all about how a lot of corporations' politics are based on fear and what we can do to minimize fear and build a culture where it's okay to fail and it's okay to make mistakes. So without further ado, here is the episode. Hey, Darren, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon. Appreciate it. So you wrote Corporate Bravery, the Eliminate Fear-Based Decision-Making, and that's going to be the center of our discussion today. You wrote this book, it seems to me, to free leaders from running their organization based on fear. But I want to back up just a little bit, that kind of overarching theme. Why has our culture become one of so much fear-mongering in the first place? I think a big part of it, and I, you know, I address this in the book too, is kind of the larger uh, macro environment, specifically with media and politics. And I think it's easy for people to kind of divide off into sides or, you know, create labels. Um, you are this person, you fall in this bucket. And when that happens, what tends to occur is it's easy to create an impression of what that other person is going to do or how they're going to act or behave. And I think because that occurs in the larger macro environment, and I I think kind of our political environment over the last year, year and a half, and, you know, I wrote this book long before the 2016 election. So, you know, I I couldn't have scripted some of the things that have gone on uh, since that time period. But, you know, it just has really served to reinforce some of those larger macro kind of factors that have created that environment. Yeah, I think you you wrote this book back in 2013, if I remember right. And I think this is more relevant than ever. It really is. You'd probably agree. (laughs) Absolutely. I would absolutely agree. I was just going to say, so I mentioned the political environment. I think the other piece is the media environment. And, you know, social media specifically, you know, kind of our ability to choose who we want to listen to and how much of that voice 
we want to amplify in our lives has really just kind of reinforced that choosing off into sides, labeling, and inevitably that bleeds over into our work environments. And I mean, we see it all the time, really harmless kind of comments that people can make about, oh, the sales team, there they go again, or uh, here comes HR or compliance, you know, fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. And I think because we're constantly kind of choosing off and decides and labeling, it just creates this environment where we are kind of eroding trust. And at the end of the day, kind of projecting uh, behaviors or kind of ways of operating to on other people inside of our organizations. So I definitely want to keep talking about that in a little bit, but I want to back up even further. So you talked about the macro level. I want to talk about a nice little uh, story you painted in your book early on. And you talked about how you started a business based on a $2,500 investment to build a website. And it, I'm sure it wasn't easy for you because it was, I don't know if you didn't have a lot of capital at the time, but you, uh, it was $2,500 of your own money. The risk of losing that money based on maybe a failing business but you had a lot of success. And in hindsight, what did you learn from that situation where you invested your own money and had success with it? Yeah, I kind of feel like we're all on a fear or brave journey, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the first step among many. And I think there'll be many more, at least for me personally. And I think for individuals that are on that journey where they can kind of choose to either be emboldened in the decisions that they made and taking those risks or kind of be knocked off their balance a little bit and have to recover from those things. And I think that story was kind of the first step on my journey towards becoming brave. And I don't by any means think that I've achieved some sort of, you know, nirvana uh, because I'm still constantly going through that decision-making process. It's not $2,500 now. Maybe it's, you know, oh my gosh, we've got three months of cash left in the bank and I've got, you know, Mm -hmm. a a team of people that are relying on us to either raise capital or, you know, increase sales over that three-month period so that we can make payroll. But it was that $2,500 was such a small thing. My wife and I were, you know, fresh out of college, newly married. You know, we, we actually should have by all standards, should have had a pretty high risk tolerance at that point. But it was funny that just that psychological barrier of having to take $2,500 of our own money out of our savings to invest in this business was the thing that was holding us back. And we didn't even realize that until we applied for this grant, won the money, and it gave us the freedom at that point to say, okay, we can invest this money because it's no it's no risk or no loss to us. But it started us on a journey. And, and if you look at the opportunity cost and the amount of our own personal sweat equity and even our own financial resources that we poured into that business over the last 12 years, you know, the, the amount of investment we made in that was well beyond $2,500. But it was a small step towards moving us in a direction. I think it's a great example because I often think, how many other people are going through this exact same scenario where they're just not willing to take a risk? Even a small risk at that. 2500 bucks isn't a, it's a lot of money, but it's not a ton of money to where you're going to like go in financial ruin over it. But yet people still fear loss and failure. Why is that? A lot of times it's because people have created an impression or an idea in their mind about worst case scenarios. And the reality is the end result or the outcomes are generally never as bad as we build them up in our own minds. And I think part that's the reason why I consider this a journey, because you need some wins along the way 
to realize that like, oh gosh, even if I do fall and stumble, I'm not going to be devastated at the end of this journey, right? Yeah, I might have learned some hard lessons, but the key thing in that is that I've actually learned some lessons and lessons are really valuable. If you can learn those at a small cost, the amount of inertia that you generate from that is significant. And I think that takes you to new places, both as an individual and inside of an organizational context. Taking this example and applying it to the workplace, do you think employees would be similarly hesitant on taking risks in their own job? I mean, it's obviously not going to be 2500 bucks, but it may be like, you know, being creative or just going out on a limb and doing something that they normally wouldn't do. They just take a bold risk in their job and they, out of fear that they will lose their job. Do you think that happens a lot? All the time, every day. I think it's the biggest impediment holding people back from unleashing their creativity to growing their business or their teams to new places. And it is it is a fear of being wrong. And it's a fear of being wrong more than it is, I think, truly a fear of failing. You know, we, we've got a new business that we've started over the last 12 months called Cloverleaf, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it throughout this podcast. But I am, you know, regularly, multiple times a day, talking with whether it's small business owners all the way up to managers or executives inside of larger organizations uh, about how Cloverleaf could help their organization. And time and time again, there is always a point of fear that holds people back from doing it, either fear that the implementation could go wrong, fear that the amount of money that they're spending on this, or fear that we're asking people to think differently about teams or how people can behave on teams. And I, I've got literally hundreds of examples just specific to my product where it is fear that ultimately holds people back. And it's not just for you know purchasing HR software, right? I mean, it's hiring. It is honestly even performance review conversations. Um, I think that's one of the biggest places that Fear holds people back, and it honestly keeps people from being able to develop and become the best contributor to a team that they can be. I find it so fascinating because we fear failure or loss, but at the same time, we learn from failure or loss, and we can grow and develop from it. So why wouldn't organizations, managers, executives, whoever's running these companies and and working with employees, why wouldn't we want to create a fear-allowing culture, as you say in the book? One of the areas that we've targeted with our product is uh, agile software development. And it's one of the few places, and it's part of the reason why I love that segment of the market, is it's one of the few places that really promotes uh, kind of failing fast. And basically, you know, you're taking kind of a lean startup model and applying that to software development inside of larger organizations. And it gives people almost a freedom to risk in that way, where it's, you know, two weeks at a time, you know, small code delivery. And, you know, at the end of that process, yeah, there may be some failure. Maybe the outcomes weren't as great as what you'd expected. But the great thing is, is you're building in a habit or a culture of giving opportunities for failure But you're also doing it in such a small way that when failure does occur, it doesn't take you way off plan. Uh, You're able to adjust quickly, and that's part of the concept behind agile software development. Or it doesn't even have to be software development, just the agile methodology, because it's, it's expanding well beyond software development at this point, is just giving people the environment to say that, hey, it's okay to fail. But I honestly haven't encountered very many places inside of the organizational context where people have the right or the ability to fail without repercussions or consequences. 
an organization or leaders or managers could say, yeah, it's okay to fail, and they say it. But what could you do in terms of action to show people it's okay to fail? Would it be, you know, not publicly shaming them for making a failure or, you know, firing them or putting them on some sort of performance improvement plan? Like what what can employers do to make sure that this culture of failure allowing methodology, like it's okay? Great start is, as you mentioned, not reprimanding them publicly. I think part of the problem is, and you will hear, hear managers make those comments or executives make those comments of, hey, it's okay to fail. But the problem is there are very few opportunities that we're giving individuals an opportunity to fail. You know, it's one thing to make those comments and it's another to even provide opportunities for people to do that. I mean, a lot of times either I personally have experienced this or I've seen other people experience this where a manager will task someone with a responsibility. And the very first step along the process, maybe let's say it's sending an email, and there was something about the email that wasn't crafted perfectly. And the manager will go back to have a a coaching conversation. But a lot of times, if there wasn't trust established long before that conversation happened, then all it sounds like is failure isn't an option here because you're micromanaging this small detail about how it communicated something in an email. So if it's not okay to fail with that, then it's certainly not okay to fail with the outcome. So there are small ways that we communicate along the road to the outcome that actually communicates the opposite of, hey, it's okay to fail. And it communicates that actually failure is not an option in this scenario. And obviously, if people are experiencing that in small ways, you know, being able to risk at a bigger level is just not even an option for those people. You have a whole section on individuality. That's a a chapter of yours, and I I loved it. I want to read an excerpt from it, and I want you to explain what you meant by it and why I think it seems like a big deal. So you quote, Too many coaching and mentoring conversations begin with superficial considerations. Besides being demoralizing for the people contributing at a high level, they sabotage culture. Especially in corporate America, there's a desperate need for diversity rather than people who all fit a mold. Superficial considerations like fashion are quick to destroy unique contributions that individuals deliver, end quote. Why is that such a big deal? I think especially as we think about generational changes in the workforce, the millennial generation, you know, obviously much discussed. I think they crave authenticity and transparency. Mm -hmm. And when you are focused or you make comments either about how someone dresses or maybe even things like how they laugh or how they might approach conversations, instead of celebrating the differences and the diversity, oftentimes in organizations, it's quick to kind of point those things out and attach a negative connotation to it that, hey, they're different or they're behaving in a way that isn't accepted in this environment. And, you know, people pick up on those subtle cues, even if they're not the person that's on the receiving end of that. If someone's making a comment to me about someone else's dress or their behavior in the workplace, I'm going to start to look at all the ways that I'm different, and then I'm going to project those comments onto those things that I'm different, and then now all of a sudden I'm hiding parts of myself. One of the things we talk about in the book is the hidden self, and a very high percentage, according to a Deloitte survey, are hiding some aspect of themselves in the workplace. I think that's one of the worst things that we can do is create an environment where people aren't able to bring their whole self to the job. Chances are their cultural backgrounds or 
kind of their experiences in another part, uh, either in another industry or in a previous work experience, are the things, you know, and there, there may be small details about those experiences that if brought to the specific task at hand, could be the difference between an okay outcome and a wild success. You mentioned early on in the book that there's two types of managers and supervisors, really one that creates trust and the other one creates fear. And I wanted to kind of get your perspective on like, what are the attributes of each type of manager, one that, you know, creates fear and the other that's trustworthy and builds that culture of trust? I think one of the biggest things is actually delivering on commitments. And a lot of times it's small commitments. So I used an example in the book of a uh, an executive that I, I worked for at one point, and someone challenged the uh, kind of resources that I was bringing to kind of a shared task. And I laid out a very compelling reason for why I wouldn't be able to provide some additional resources to this task. And, you know, I'm traveling, I'm making a, a pretty significant commitment. I'd been working all day and, you know, I get back to the hotel room at 1030 at night and there's an email from this executive who was my, my manager at the time, who basically said, wow, this is, this is actually going to impact your performance negatively. Hmm. And you're indicating that you're not a team player here. And it was almost like there was zero regard for the rationale or the argument that I laid out. And I even offered counterpoints, how we could get the resources at little to no additional cost. But all it, all that was communicated to me in that example was uh, negative outcomes. And, you know, it, it immediately eroded trust. And I think it really comes back to that manager-subordinate relationship. And a lot of times it's small details on a day-to-day basis, either commitments that go unfilled or situations where it appears that, you know, what, what you're paying lip service to is truly just that. It's lip service. And you're not actually planning to follow through on those commitments. That's one of the biggest ways to erode trust and I think kind of create an environment of disengagement. Let's talk about eroding trust just a little bit more. You had a, a beautiful segment on monitoring web activity and email. I just found it super fascinating because I know a lot of employers are, are out there using technology to monitor the activity of their employees. You personally had, um, in one of your previous roles, you had a potential vendor come in. They monitored activity on employees for a couple of weeks. And at the end of that, they presented you with a report that included, maybe to your surprise, discussions of violence, sex, resumes, and even competitor names. And I think you you suggested that the intent was to monitor and enforce the company policies. But really what you suggested was that there's an underlying premise that there was a level of distrust between employer and employee. What's your overall stance and kind of, you know, history lesson from that? Yeah, and I want to just comment that I, I know, especially in highly regulated industries, some of those kinds of technologies are you know, very important and potentially, you know, invaluable. Mm -hmm. I just think we have to be aware that when we implement some of the monitoring tools and some of the uh, compliance related software applications that are out there, and they're getting more and more sophisticated and advanced, it sends a very clear cultural message to the workforce. Back to the previous question about trust, sends a very clear message that, hey, we actually don't trust you we are there ready to just whack you at the first chance that we have. And you have no idea how many times in that organization that I was in, people would make comments about, well, I'm not going to put that in email because I'm sure they're watching. Yeah. And, and I knew, I knew that they weren't, you know, we, we didn't make the decision to actually go forward and, and monitor activity at that level, but people just kind of assume it. 
these days. I think because so yeah, many organizations have implemented those software packages, but even in the most trustworthy or trusting environments or cultures, we've still created this environment where people just expect that they're always being watched and they're always ready to be whacked. <laughs> Yeah. And if employers know that they're being monitored, do you think they suppress the normal behavior or, or the individuality as we talked about? Earlier? Yeah, I think it's def- it definitely comes into play because if you're believing that that's what's happening and you know maybe you've even seen examples in either other departments or people even in your own department that have had some sort of consequences for something that they've said or done either through email or, you know, even even tracking, you know, phone calls or things like that, then there's always going to be this voice in the back of their mind when they're, you know, communicating via email or they're communicating in, in other ways that, hey, is this something that's going to create an impediment for my career? And as long as that voice is talking to them, it's going to hold them back, not only from being being able to bring their whole self to the task, but also from giving their best work. Because if they're constantly thinking about, you know, the negative or the potential consequences, then they're not freed up to think creatively and bring their best work to the task. And now for a quick break to talk about Zenium's third annual What People Want From Work survey. Are your employees happy at work? Here's one way to find out. There's nothing better than open, honest, and anonymous feedback, which is why Zenium created the What People Want From Work survey, which is open to employers of all sizes for free. This 20-question employee survey reveals what people really want from their workplace, and it provides insights around leadership, workplace culture, management support, rewards and recognition, and work environment. Employers can sign up for free June 20th, 2017 until July 31st, 2017 at zenimhr.com. And the link is in the show notes so you can get right to the page. And now back to the program. Let's shift over to politics a little bit. So politics exist, obviously, in the political environment, but in business as well. Years ago, I used to just read nothing but politics and economics books and a lot of this stuff dovetails together. You had a really nice quote that I, I and I thought it simplified what politicking really is. And I want to read that for the listeners. So you say, politics in general is the fight for power over control over a limited set of resources or influence. As more and more groups and interests fight for those resources, the more political maneuvering tends to occur, end quote. In my mind, is it safe to assume that as an organization grows in size and in resources, that politicking actually gets worse? And then what can organizations do to really minimize the negative effects of politicking? It's a great question. I I think one of the things that I mentioned there, right, is I think you just have to consider when you're implementing budgeting processes or you're implementing business strategies about how you're allocating resources, there is an inherent cultural impact that occurs with how you're actually implementing that. So if you have misalignment in terms of how dollars are being budgeted and allocated to division, and you have a different approach at a strategic level about where you're making investment at a, at a product level or at a divisional level, those things need to all be in alignment because if they're not, people quickly understand how to game the system. And they quickly understand how to either access more of those resources or generate uh, kind of undue influence. And that's, that's where politics start to go kind of haywire. And that's where it starts to influence or impact the culture. 
So I don't know that I have one prescriptive way to think about that. I just think that as you're setting up budgeting processes, as you're you're setting up strategic planning processes and how those things are cascaded down to the rank and file people that are on the front lines, those can have a cultural impact that influence risk and reward behavior and impact culture potentially negatively in terms of fear and in terms of unleashing people to be their best self. I don't know what you had to do to uh, research and find all these beautiful nuggets to support all your your ideas, but you found for the politics section, you, you, you cited a LinkedIn post from Jack and Susie Welch entitled, Schmooze or Lose, How the Lost Art of Negotiation Led to a Shutdown. Uh, and this is talking about the government shutdown that happened a few years back. Can you summarize why they suggested schmoozing has a lot of great benefits as it relates to just politics and yeah, the workplace? I think schmoozing itself, the term, generally has kind of a negative connotation. But I think the the idea behind what they were saying is 100% right. And it kind of comes back to that original politics conversation that we had early on in this podcast. And it's the idea that if we just shut ourselves off to people who are not like us or who maybe have something, uh, maybe they're trying to push for an outcome that is either opposed or maybe not necessarily in agreement with what we're doing. By just shutting those people off and not engaging in that conversation, you are guaranteed to have more conflict and more opportunities for negative outcomes. And one of the things that we talk about around that quote from Jack and Susie Welch is, and, and I think a lot of a lot of it was related to this, was uh, kind of labor negotiations. And you know, the recent examples with the NFL, and if you look across the major sports, people would generally say the NFL has the most difficult labor relations with their players. And a lot of that comes back to the approach of how the NFL, the commissioner and the commissioner's office approach the players associations and the players in general. So some of the things that they've done is issued mm-hmm. fines for excessive celebrations in the end zone. Uh, they have uh, an excessive amount. <laughs> so it makes the game great. Uh, absolutely. Though. I mean, it's the stuff that fans enjoy and there's pros and cons to all of these things, but the NFL has taken a really sure. hard line approach on, you know, the way people wear their uniforms and, you know, they have to have to be uniform coloring on the cleats. They can't, again, bring that individuality into the workforce. And keep in mind, like, we're not talking about a call center operation, right? I mean, this is, this is the NFL. It's entertainment. It's tens of millions of people are watching it on the weekends. And, but there's a clear dichotomy between how the NFL is approaching labor relations and how, say, the NBA or maybe to a lesser extent, Major League Baseball yes. is approaching that. And, and you yeah. see that play out. There is way more, way more friction between management and the Players Association in the NFL than exists in the other, in the other leagues. And it really comes back to how much control do you want to exert over the workforce? Uh, if we're bringing it back to kind of day to day organizational context, how much control do you exert? You know, what, what kind of relationships are you building? Outside of those points where decisions have to be made or where things have to be negotiated, have you built up a storehouse of goodwill? And do you know people at an individual level so that when it comes time to, to negotiate that really difficult, you know, whether it's a pay increase or it's, uh, you know, access to additional budget dollars, that people understand where you're coming from. They know you as an individual as opposed to you as the label or the box that they've put you in. You know, back to schmoozing, I'm not a huge fan of that word, 
But it really comes back to, are you building a relationship with the people that are your partners, that are your employees, that are your vendors? And can, you know, is is that going to pay off for you down the road? And I believe that it will. Let's talk about fear of competition. Uh, You have a lot of great points in this. I actually, this struck, struck a chord with me a little bit. Being in marketing that I am, I often look at my competitors and say, oh my gosh, they're, they're doing some really cool things in marketing. Why can't I do that? Maybe I should copy them. Oh my gosh, you know, they're going to catch up with us, whatever. But instead of doing that, shouldn't I be focusing on what my strengths are and honing in on what my audience want for me and those sort of things instead of kind of looking in the rearview mirror at the competitors and absolutely i mean i think the the most recent high profile example and i totally would have included this in the book and if there's another edition somewhere down the road i'll include it but the summer olympics this past summer the usain bolt or no, it wasn't usain bolt it was uh it was a swimming example so michael phelps coming back out of retirement there was the swimmer and gosh i can't remember what country he was from now i feel like it was it was a european nation and you know, time after time after time, when they would show the two of them in the pool or getting ready for the pool, the other swimmer was just constantly focused on Michael Phelps. And Michael Phelps was completely mm-hmm. oblivious to this guy's presence even being on the on the deck of the swimming pool. He was focused on what he needed to do to win the race. He was focused on his pacing, his timing, you know, the normal preparation that he would go through. And time after time, they would camera would pan over and you would see this guy. And it was clear that he was so distracted by his competition that he didn't end up running the race or swimming the race that he could have swam. And uh, time to time since that race, I've seen it referred to. And that's kind of the tunnel vision that we get focused on by being so afraid of what the competition is going to do. It takes us out of focusing on our strengths and how we can leverage those towards successful outcomes. And we end up chasing things that we have no business chasing or uh, making decisions that end up just being short-sighted and taking us off of our path. You mentioned in the book that when you're protecting yourself against competition, you, you're building a competitive moat. And you talked about how Elon Musk did the exact opposite. He opened up Tesla's entire patent library versus kind of building the wall of protection around the ideas that Tesla and SpaceX may have, and instead of just giving it away, as long as it's used in good faith. Talk about that, because I thought it was a beautiful Yeah, I'm sure it was somewhat selfish motivations from Elon Musk, and it it was very (laughs) strategic on his part. But one of the things that he just came to is, you know, he said, hey, if ultimately our vision is to create this place where, you know, we're having zero emission transportation in the United States, there's so much opportunity that even if Tesla was successful beyond their wildest ambitions, they still wouldn't be able to accomplish that goal over a 30, 50, maybe even a 100-year period. And he said, because of that, we need to bring this technology, we need more people using this technology to, to achieve those outcomes. And when you think about kind of that generational workforce issue, again, you know, back to the what millennials need and what they crave, it's authenticity. It's a really incredible why. And, you know, that, that engendered a lot of commitment from the Tesla workforce. Now, ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, there, there's a really strategic reason why he would want to do that, right? Because if other people are using those technologies, they can get charging stations out faster and with a higher density. Yeah, so, I mean, exactly. there, there was a strategic reason why he did that. But at the end of the day, it's like we need to think a little bit more about embracing the competition or at least thinking about, hey, how do we both compete in this market in a way that we can both be successful? And stop running afraid 
from the competition or even worse towards what the competition is doing instead of staying in our own lane. Let's provide an example in your book that's the exact opposite of that. So you talked about how Apple, their combined spending on patent litigation exceeded $20 billion. And you you mentioned that that's larger than the money they spent on research and development. And I don't know what the time frame is for that, but you don't have to be an economist to figure out that that's a giant misallocation of resources. And if they were able to use that towards research and development, they may be able to focus on their strengths, which is innovating amazing products instead of (laughs) litigating against competitors for the products that they have, you know, they've already created. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if you look at kind of the lack of innovation coming out of Apple over the last year to two, I mean, I think that cultural shift is starting to play out in the marketplace. You know, we need the innovations like an emoji keyboard is not kind of what the market is demanding. And it's not living up to the promise of what Apple has been known for for the last 20 to 30 years. And I think it's a direct result of kind of that culture. If you're focused on controlling what you have instead of growing to a new place, that will always keep you from being less innovative. And that, in my opinion, is is what is happening to Apple today. A couple more questions for you, and then I'll, I'll let you go since we're running out of time. Your section on media and relations, I found pretty fascinating. So I think as organizations get larger, they feel like they have more to lose from bad publicity. But talk about, because you provide a lot of examples, how can they turn any crisis in their favor instead of being fearful over what you know media is going to say about them? If we bring it back to the political realm again, you know, that again, this current Trump administration is kind of rewriting the rule book on some of that stuff as well, because you know, early on, after a couple of tweets about automakers manufacturing in the United States, you know, there would be an initial negative backlash. So the stock would drop 10, 15 percent the next morning. And there were just serious repercussions to these tweets that were going out in the early morning hours. So what ended up happening is PR firms started changing their hours. And they actually had people on call at you know, 6 a.m. Eastern time, even if, even if they were Pacific Coast company, just monitoring, you know, the Trump administration's tweets. And again, it's, it's coming from a place of fear. You know, I'm, I'm worried about the ramifications. I mean, what are the chances that any single company is going to be singled out and targeted by Donald Trump? You know, it's pretty low. But regardless, you had a lot of, especially West Coast firms, completely changing their staffing model and their hours of operation to account for this one specific potential outcome. So you could spend your time worried about that and changing your approach to, you know, hours of operation and monitoring and, you know, having prescriptive responses ready for that potential eventuality. Or you could be like uh, a recent example is Merriam-Webster, which, you know, you don't think of dictionaries or encyclopedias, you know, being uh, kind of innovators. But one of the things they did is they've seized the opportunity that the Trump administration has given them. They've actually doubled their Twitter followers over the last three months. And it's largely because they're using opportunities for either word choice or potentially a bad word choice by the Trump administration to leverage that to their advantage. And they've become actually influential or at least relevant to a a larger audience. And it's giving them more influence, giving their brand influence. And um, that's an opportunity where they actually seized an opportunity as opposed to looking at that as a as a negative or a potential, you know, fearful outcome. When you look at the the entirety of this book, really helping business leaders make decisions that are not based on fear, what do you hope people do with this? 
and at the end of the day, like who who's the audience that you want reading this book, and and where should they be, you know, taking this and applying this? I wanted to call fear out as something that's okay to talk about mm-hmm. in a corporate context. I mean, I yeah. feel like too often it's easy to get wrapped up into this mindset that we need to have all the answers. I need to project confidence. All that serves to do is actually just reinforce a lot of the cultural behaviors that give fear an opportunity to take hold and impact our cultures. At the end of the day, we want engaged workforces. We want people who are excited to come to work and are on mission with what we're trying to do with our organizations. And if we don't call that out and we don't look at the individual behaviors that can contribute to that culture of fear, we're not going to live up to the expectations that we have for being wildly successful cultures and wildly successful businesses. And so at the end of the day, I really want managers and executives to look at those individualized behaviors that occur on a day-to-day basis and think differently about how to approach, whether it's people management or it is just how we operate and some of the structural components we put in place to give our employees the permission to be brave, to fail from time to time, but fail in a safe and meaningful way that contributes to the organizational learning or wisdom. And it not only makes individual organizations more innovative, but it makes our entire economy more innovative. I just love that point. I mean, our listeners are a lot of HR people, and I think they would probably resonate with this. They, they would probably say most employees think HR, you know, the department of no, they're the on management side of things, they're enforcing policies, all those things. But actually, we're finding that's the opposite nowadays. They're very strategic. They're forward-thinking. They're very creative people. They're very people-focused. They care about people. They want to build a great culture. And I think I, I love that you're calling out fear because if we can create a culture that's not based on fear. I think we could be way more productive. And that's why I loved your book. I agree. And I, I mean, I hope HR leaders enjoy reading it and they can take some things away that they can use with their business partners. You know, I haven't found HR to be uh, kind of a contributor. I mean, it, every situation is not going to be the same. So, I mean, there clearly are places where that has happened, but I, I do generally find HR to be uh, kind of a champion of individuals and opportunities for individuals inside of organizations. And if this gives them a vocabulary that they can use with business partners or executives inside the organization to create cultural change, that, that's meaningful. And I'm excited about that. Wonderful. Darren, thank you for joining the podcast. Any, anything you want to mention, Parting? Uh, anything about Cloverleaf, you know, your website, anything that you want to let listeners know about what you're up to? Yeah, well, I did allude to Cloverleaf earlier in the conversation. And then, uh, we have created a startup that is really kind of taking the next step with us. Um, I wouldn't say it's specifically focused on creating brave cultures, but it's really more about creating an awareness. I, I would say if there was one chapter in the book that really kind of inspired what we're doing with Cloverleaf, it's that chapter on individuality. And with the platform, what we're trying to do is create a way to think about teams and people on teams and how they can contribute their most unique value to the team, how they can understand their role on the team, and how they can contribute that every day in every situation. And uh, if you want to find out more about that, you can go to cloverleaf.me. Our guest today has been Darren Murner. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. 
Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.